I felt that if those people who conducted the Tuskegee experiments were allowed to succeed, not only because of what they did, but because future generations of African-Americans were still too afraid to participate in trials that would benefit us, then those people would really have won twice. And I was not going to let that happen. We had excluded patients with uh, HIV and immunodeficiencies. And I think there was an outreach by the community that said, uh, you guys are not really accurately reflecting our population. And the science has evolved to the point where actually those of us who are stable should be able to participate. And we had a dialogue with them over the past few days. And we basically said, you know what, you're right. Welcome to our podcast about biotechnology breakthroughs, the DNA of all living things and the DNA of scientists, companies, and patients who make miracles happen. I'm Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath, the new president and CEO of the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, and I can't wait to take this journey with you. You're listening to I Am Bio. Vaccine makers in the COVID space face a conundrum. The pandemic has been especially hard and potentially fatal on those who've had trouble accessing our healthcare system in the past and therefore live with untreated illnesses. However, in large vaccine clinical trials, it's not unusual for the FDA to exclude people who may be too ill to yield reliable results. Yet when it comes to contracting coronavirus, the people who need the vaccine the most are the ill those with conditions like diabetes, asthma, and COPD. Scientists call this having comorbidities, the simultaneous presence of two chronic diseases in a single patient. And how biotech companies thread this needle will go a long way towards determining how well a vaccine works to protect the sick, the elderly, and communities of color. But that's not the only COVID vaccine challenge. The FDA is requiring that companies enroll 30,000 people in the final stage of testing to ensure their vaccine candidate is safe and effective on a large group. But you can't test the shot's effectiveness unless some number of patients you vaccinate in your trial actually get COVID. This puts trial designers in an unusual position of having to select participants who can't socially distance and are at a high risk of infection based on where they live or work. It's a biomedical high-wire act. We all know this crisis won't be over until we have a vaccine, but finding the right people to test is no easy trick. So vaccines are tested in three phases. Phase one is safety testing on a small group. Phase two is safety and efficacy testing on a small group. And phase three is safety and efficacy testing on a large group of human participants. Last week, Moderna became the first U.S. company to enter a phase three clinical trial for a COVID vaccine. And today, we're going to hear from Moderna's chief medical officer, Tal Zaks. He oversees clinical development and is the architect of the company's historic vaccine trial. Tal, this is a crazy busy time for you, I know, and thanks for giving us a little of your time. Welcome to I Am Bio. It's a pleasure to be here. 
So we know Moderna was the first to clinic with a COVID vaccine candidate in March. And now you're the first into a big phase three trial just four months later. That's almost a new world record for speed. But the record everyone is focused on is approval. The current record holder is the mumps vaccine back in the 1960s, and that took four years to go from viral specimen to an actual licensed product. From where you sit, should we be hopeful we'll get to the finish line on a potential COVID vaccine faster than ever before? I believe the answer to that is yes. We've been able at Moderna to leverage the science of our mRNA technology to get us started much faster than people had been able to do so before. But it's not just about the speed to start, it's actually also about your ability to then scale up manufacturing and production. What we're trying to do here with this vaccine is predicated on a lot of learnings in the past years of how to make vaccines against respiratory viruses, and specifically close cousins of this SARS-CoV-2, namely SARS or SARS-CoV-1 and MERS. And so we've had experience understanding how to teach the immune system to recognize these viruses and prevent infection. And we've been able to leverage that science into the design of our vaccine. And the last element that is truly unique in this era, and I don't think I've ever lived through anything like it, is the very close collaboration between scientists from different companies and scientists from pharmaceutical companies, academic labs, and the um, government agencies that are Uh, both pushing the science, but also regulating ultimately uh, vaccine and drug development. I think the sense of urgency we all feel in this current um, state of the pandemic is uh, shared amongst everybody working on it. And that sense of urgency uh, has driven unprecedented collaboration. You know, I, I spent four years at the FDA, and I'm so impressed by the cutting edge science and the public private collaborations you're talking about. It's truly unprecedented. There are a lot of misconceptions right now that the speed of vaccine development is being driven by politics when it's really the transformative technology that you're talking about that's powering this engine. Can you tell our listeners what's unique about Moderna's platform that has enabled you to move so fast? Yes, I think the two factors here, uh, one that is unique to Moderna is our platform. So messenger RNA is the software of life, if you will. It is the instruction sets that teaches the body, each cell in the body, which proteins to make. That means that we start from digital information. We've never had the virus to work with in our labs. We don't need it. What we have is the information that the virus encodes. And we leverage that information. Because this is all synthetic biology, we're able to scale it up quite quickly. It's also the same underpinning that allows us now to scale production so that we have doses available for millions of people. But the other element of speed is a little bit more nuanced, and that is when you get to late phase development, in order to show that a vaccine works, you need to actually demonstrate that you're preventing infection. And in order to do that, what you do is you conduct a very large trial. We've just started a very large phase three where half the subjects get the vaccine and half the subjects don't. They're sort of the control arm, if you will. They get a placebo. And then you monitor and you see what is the event rate or how many people get infected. So if you're targeting an illness that is quite rare, you have to vaccinate a lot of people, but then you have to wait a long time for those events to accumulate. Unfortunately, 
the pandemic around us in the US right now uh, is quite active. For vaccine development, the paradox is that that actually hastens vaccine development because it means that if we uh, are able to vaccinate people who live in high-risk areas, their likelihood of infection is what actually drives the timeline. So because we're facing such a uh, peak of a crisis, it actually makes it a little bit faster and easier for you to, to test whether or not the vaccine is going to be successful. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly right. So choosing participants for a vaccine trial in an ongoing pandemic must be complicated, isn't it? I mean, how do you choose which patients get in? So it is. And that's actually the starting point for any trial. And so uh, we went through a lot of deliberations with our colleagues at the NIH and infectious disease experts and, and are looking at sort of the shape of this pandemic to uh, make sure that the people we choose are people who represent those that are likely to benefit. They generally will fall into uh, two groups, if you will, those that are likely to get infected uh, by virtue of their occupation, where they live, uh, and those who, should they get infected, are more likely to get sick. If you're like me and you're able to work remotely and minimize your interactions outside and practice social distancing because you're able to, um, I'm probably not a good candidate for our vaccine trial. We know how hard COVID has been on communities of color. I mean, Herman Cain's death last week was yet another reminder one out of every 1,500 Black people in America are now dead from COVID. You've been a leader when it comes to enrolling subjects that reflect our nation's diversity. What's your strategy to make sure you're, you're reaching these people and that you're studying people at the greatest risk? So, Michelle, it's a, it's a really good question. And I've sort of, I've asked myself the, that exact question, how, how do we get there? And I think there are a few elements for me personally and for the team that have been guiding us. And the first and foremost is transparency. I think you have to be very clear when you communicate and you have to be open so that people understand what it is you're doing and why. We have actually published uh, and spoken about our trial design at a greater detail than I believe any of the companies to date. I think we have an obligation. So we've described, you know, at, at very high technical detail, not just the inclusion and exclusion criteria, but how many cases are we going to count? What are the statistical elements? We've talked about how we're, we're monitoring uh, patients for safety during their trial or participants, should they become sick? And, and so I think that it starts with transparency. The second element is really collaboration. And this is with the local communities. Ultimately, trust is earned by people you know. And if you work with the investigators spread out across the United States, they're in a much better position than I am to know who their local constituents are. And by the way, diversity is different depending on your local uh, area, right? What diversity is in Boston is probably not the same as what diversity is in Alabama or in Seattle. And so I think listening to those local investigators and working with those sites, we support them with material, with communication, et cetera. But ultimately, we really rely on them. I think you also have to make sure you take the time to listen. And so I'll give you an example. When we looked at our trial we had excluded patients with uh, HIV and immunodeficiencies for, you know, probably a historical reason of considering these uh, participants 
their immune system may be somewhat compromised and therefore they had been excluded from the initial protocol. And I think there was an outreach by the community that said, uh, you guys are not really accurately reflecting our population and the science has evolved to the point where actually those of us who are stable should be able to participate. And we had a dialogue with them over the past few days and we basically said, you know what, you're right. Uh, and we're going to go change that. So I think by doing this, you're actually engaging in a dialogue with the community at large. Once, as I hope, this vaccine is proven safe and effective, people will, will know that they've been part of that journey and they will be able to leverage those results to actually protect themselves. One of your clinical trial participants, an African-American woman named Robin, did a virtual chat last week with Dr. Anthony Fauci and Dr. Francis Collins, who leads the NIH. Robin talked about the legacy of mistrust in the African-American community when it comes to medical research and her determination to overcome it. I want to play a clip from that chat and get your reaction. I have to say that when I told my friends and relatives that I was going to participate, they were absolutely adamant that it was a bad idea. They tried to discourage me because they were concerned about my health and about my safety. And the reason for that was because in the African-American community, we are all familiar with the Tuskegee experiments. Uh, and for those of you who might, may not know, the Tuskegee experiments were experiments, public health experiments, with hundreds of African-American men uh, who were tricked into participating in these experiments so that doctors could watch the progress of syphilis in their bodies without giving them any treatment. Uh, the experiment ran for 40 years. It only ended in 1972. And so many people are in the African-American community are familiar with it. And when you ask them about participating in clinical trials, they'll give you two words, Tuskegee, and no, I was one of those people. So the question then becomes, how did I do a complete about face and decide to participate in this COVID-19 trial? I felt that if those people who conducted the Tuskegee experiments were allowed to succeed, not only because of what they did, but because future generations of African-Americans were still too afraid to participate in trials that would benefit us, then those people would really have won twice. And I was not going to let that happen. I should actually add that today there are laws that were not in place then that protect people who volunteer. But I just did not want to be one of those people who was too afraid years later to participate in something that could benefit us. What's your reaction when you hear that? She's amazing. Truly, I have a lot of admiration for how she didn't let stereotypes decide her thinking and her actions, but she actually, she knows the history, she knows the background, she's done her homework, and she's come to the conclusion of actually what's right for her. That kind of thinking and courage, it's, it's, it's inspiring. Mm. And, you know, of course, the reason it's so important to have this diversity in the trial is because you want to see how each and every 
subpopulation. Each and every type of person responds to the vaccine to make sure it works for all. And if African-Americans are at a greater risk, then the only thing that's going to tell whether or not this vaccine will protect them is if we have African-Americans in the trial. So we at Bio really applaud what you're doing in this space. And we're getting ready to launch our bioequity campaign this week that really speaks to the importance of diversity in clinical trials and some of the other issues around um, inequity and social justice that we've been talking about a lot in this country recently. So of course, vaccine hesitancy isn't unique to any one culture. And I've seen surveys showing that over half of all Americans have some reluctance when it comes to a COVID vaccine. How do you think we should handle the anti-vaxxers? And what's the best way to convince Americans that once the FDA issues an approval, that it's a science-based decision that we can all trust? I think it's incumbent upon all of us who are at the forefront of translating science into medicine to listen to the anti-vaxxers and understand what is behind their concerns. Now, it, it is legitimate to say, I don't want to be vaccinated. Everybody, I think, has a sense of autonomy and has the right to make their own choice. And so long as they have the full information and understand the benefit and understand the risk, then it is up to them. That being said, if I step back and think about what, what is likely to happen, I expect that this vaccine will ultimately work to prevent disease. And I say that because of the results we've seen so far in terms of our ability to stimulate the immune system. Now, should that happen, people will have a choice to make. Do I want to be one of the first to get vaccinated so that the risk for me personally is low? Or do I want to sort of get a free ride, if you will, wait for 80% of the population to be vaccinated such that the virus will disappear over time as the epidemiology is expected to play out without me having to get vaccinated? Well, you can choose not to get vaccinated, but then so long as the virus is still around us, you're going to be at risk. And I think if you look at the severity of the infection and the, the outcomes here, understanding the benefit-risk proposition here, I don't think is going to be rocket science. But if people believe for their own um, beliefs, their understanding of the data is that they do not want to get vaccinated. I, I, I'm, I'm completely fine with that. I do not think this should be a mandatory vaccine. I think people should make sure they have the information and then come to their own informed decision. One of the controversies or confusing stories, I should say, around COVID has been the story about how long protective antibodies last. And I get the question often, does that mean that in a vaccine, even if it's successful, will only provide short-lived protection. Do you have a sense of how long-lasting the protection will be with Moderna's vaccine? The answer is no. Our knowledge of this disease is about six, seven months old. So we don't know if natural immunity is protective beyond six months. My sense is that if you've, if you've been sick with this virus, you're not going to get sick again in the next six, seven months because nobody has yet described that I'm aware of 
a bona fide case of somebody who got sick, got better again, then got infected again with the virus and became sick again. And so my sense is that for at least six, seven months, natural infection will produce enough immunity that you won't get sick enough, sick again. Now, what we've seen with the immunogenicity of our vaccine is that the level of the neutralizing antibodies that our vaccine is able to generate is actually higher than what you see if you've been sick with COVID-19. And so I expect that our vaccine is going to protect from disease for at least as long as the natural infection will protect you. Again, if that's six months, 12 months, or a few years, I don't know. If I could get six to 12 months of protection and figure out in 2023 whether I need a booster shot, that would still be a great thing. My mom is 80 years old. I wish there was a way I could ensure that there's an effective vaccine and she gets it so that she can finally, you know, come back and hug her grandkids and go about her day instead of being at home. So I think the question of durability is an important one scientifically, but when it comes to understanding the benefit of this vaccine and how we deploy it, at least within the timeframe of our pandemic, it's probably less, less important. I mean, we, we are in the routine of getting flu shots every year, and now that's for a slightly different reason, but it, it's still the, the, the custom of getting a vaccine every year. So as you say, six to 12 months would be a huge improvement over, over where we are today. Absolutely. And we should remember that flu is unique in that flu has a tendency to mutate such that your immune system no longer recognizes it the next season. We don't know that that's actually the case for SARS-CoV-2. And so it remains to be seen whether we will need a seasonal flu and a seasonal COVID shot. That may be the case. It may not. I think that's a that will be a question to ask once we've put this pandemic, at least the majority of the morbidity and mortality behind us. So, you know, diversity is also about diversity of risk. And you talked a little bit about how, you know, different occupations have different levels of risk. Last week, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices at the Centers for Disease Control released a study on essential workers, workers in hospitals, nursing homes, prisons, and meatpacking plants. The study found that those at the highest risk were obese people and those with underlying conditions like diabetes, hypertension, asthma, and COPD. The Food and Drug Administration has what's called exclusionary criteria for the trial. You touched a bit on HIV. Can you explain to our listeners what that means and how you strike the balance on who to include and who to exclude? Yes, it's a it's a great question. You have to strike, as you say, that right balance between including enough participants who are at risk by virtue of comorbidities because they will then be representative of the people you hope to bring the most protection to, but at the same time, making sure that you have an understanding of the totality of the population, and also importantly, an understanding of the totality of the safety and what we call reactogenicity. You know, how much does your arm hurt when you get the vaccine for a day? And so far, our sense of the safety and reactogenicity has been that this is this should be a fairly well-tolerated vaccine. But of course, you want to make sure you study that in a large and diverse population when you come to phase three, so that you know what to expect when it's launched to hundreds of thousands and eventually millions of people. When we think about that population, where we've come down on that is 
people who have really significant underlying illnesses that would hamper the ability of their immune response to uh, respond and may affect the results of the trial, we've decided to exclude them. Now, I'm a medical oncologist, so obviously cancer patients undergoing treatment is a population very near and dear to my heart. And the way to answer the question of this vaccine for that population is going to be with a separate study uh, just in those patients so that we can be sure we understand and we know what to expect there. But you don't want that to dilute, if you will, your understanding of the overall effect when you do a large trial that will be the basis for everybody's access to this vaccine. On the other hand, people with the comorbidities that you cited their immune system should be fine and their data are critical. So in fact, we had put in a criteria to the trial that says that at least a quarter of the participants need to be either elderly above 65 because we know they're, they're at high risk or people who have these comorbidities that put them at high risk of disease should they get infected. So that's already built in to the design of the trial. So one last question. You have an event-driven timeline for your trial, meaning you're waiting for the volunteers to see if they come down with COVID. Um, I'm wondering, how do you feel about the question of human challenge vaccine trials, where you actually are giving the volunteers the the candidate vaccine, but then also knowingly exposing them to COVID? It would help conclude the trial much more quickly, but it also raises other concerns, does it not? Uh, it does. And so, Michelle, when, when, when we talk about trials that expose volunteers, the first thing I'd say is the people who've signed up to volunteer for these trials are absolute modern-day heroes, and I truly respect them. But ultimately... The goal of such an approach would be to, as you say, save time. That would come at the expense of not really knowing what would be the effect in the population you intend to treat, right? Because in, this, in a challenge study, you would treat young, healthy people, whereas we've just spent a good amount of time discussing how important it is to understand the effect of the vaccine and its efficacy in people with comorbid conditions who are the ones most likely to benefit. So a challenge trial wouldn't enable us to know that. It would also be hard to extrapolate from such a challenge trial what would be the overall efficacy to prevent disease. And so I think it would increase the confidence that your vaccine uh, should work, but it would likely not replace a very large randomized phase three trial. Now, since we have moved rapidly uh, through the first couple of phases of uh, trials, we already know that our vaccine has the potential to have a benefit based on the ability to generate these neutralizing antibodies. We've shown in several preclinical species that we can actually prevent infection when you do challenge models in animals. And so I think as time progresses, and we're now in the midst of a very large phase three trial, the benefit of such a challenge study become less and less, at least for our vaccine, and so with that, I, I find it difficult personally to put these people at risk of infection if ultimately they will not hasten the time to approval for our vaccine. 
Tal, thank you so much for being with us. I feel like we've learned so much in this short amount of time. We've learned the cutting-edge latest news about what's happening with the most important vaccine that we've seen in our lifetimes. Um, And we've also learned what to expect and what questions to ask. So thank you so much for doing this important work, for focusing on building diverse clinical trial population. And, you know, all of us are wishing you luck. Michelle, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for your interest. Thank you. That's all for today. Don't forget to subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Or even better, if you've learned something useful today, please share a link to the I Am Bio pod with your family and friends. To learn more about the work of heroes and sheroes in lab coats, please visit iambio.org. On our next episode, we're going to talk about hydrochloroquine. Not only is it ineffective in fighting COVID-19, the FDA cautions it can cause serious heart rhythm problems, kidney injuries, and liver failure when improperly prescribed. The president's decision to continue promoting the drug to help fight the coronavirus is causing multiple problems. One third of patients with lupus who actually need the medicine to prevent flare-ups are having trouble accessing it because of so much improper use. We need to make science-based decisions to navigate this pandemic. We're going to get into it on next Monday's episode of I Am Bio. 